0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Manuia Letainiao, Kiara Kanto Toa, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Eggi Vinaka. Thank you for tuning in to the show this Tuesday morning. On today's lineup, Balao will be the first Pacific nation to completely ban vaping. And is human trafficking becoming a problem in Doha? A major project documenting the importance of the PNG key-up history. More on that. And for any of our stories, make sure you head to our website. Just type ABC Pacific Beat into your search engine and feel free to share all these stories across your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific bait. Papua New Guinea police say more than 60 people have been killed by tribal fighting in Inga province over the last month. As many as 10 tribes have been involved in revengeful acts of violence, often using hired soldiers, prompting police to authorise the use of lethal force. This comes as a disturbing video has been circulating on social media over the weekend, showing three bodies being dragged behind a ute, while onlookers from the village record and cheer.
2: Mackenzie Smith reports. The video, which circulated on social media over the weekend, shows the bodies of three men shot dead during a failed raid on a village in the early hours of Saturday morning. According to Inga Provincial Police Commander, Acting Superintendent George Kakas, the men were mercenaries hired by another village's tribe, now the latest victims of an escalating conflict. Kakas says a few of the 10 tribes involved do the fighting themselves.
3: The tribal fights have uh, changed uh, in the way they they conduct the fights. We've had uh, tribes uh, hiring gunmen and missionaries to come and do the bidding for them, to do the fights for them.
2: Kakas estimates between 60 to 70 people have been killed in the past four weeks. But because some of the fighting has been taking place in the bush, the true figure may be higher than this. According to him, the three men in the video died after word got out about their plan of attack.
3: This gunman uh, came uh, uh, came through the bushes uh, down the river, uh, came up and then by crawling through a, a a culvert which goes across the road, under the road. They did not know that the gunmen, the, the tribe, were waiting for, for them on the other side. So when they went, they shot all of them, shot all of them and dragged them out. He said
2: police won't outright pursue anyone in connection with the violence. Despite the police commissioner, David Manning, last week issuing orders to use lethal force when needed in anger. Police have been wary of going up against heavily armed groups. Instead, they're intent on shutting down financing for the tribes. Kakas says villagers wouldn't be able to hire gunmen and ammunition without outside support. In this case, he suspects people who own land in the area and want to protect their private interests.
3: One uh, bullet from a 16 rifle or AR-15, uh, a 5.56 a uh, bullet it goes for hundred, hundred kina, hundred kina per bullet. And from what we have been uh, seeing, you know, they fire so many shots into the air, fire shots into themselves, and it's a lot of money going. So we don't expect little villages, little subsistent farmers, to come up with, uh, you know, let alone hundred kina for a day to purchase a bullet.
2: Kaka says, if they're able to find out who is funding the villages, they could solve the conflict. Kate Schutze is Pacific Researcher for Amnesty International. She says she's worried the shoot-to-kill orders, which name bush knives a common sight in PNG, as suspect weapons could do more harm than good.
4: There might be lots of reasons why people in rural communities who are doing farming, for example, might need such equipment and then it's not necessarily being used in a criminal or menacing way. And I think that's the nuance that often the PNG police force um, Misunderestimates or misunderstands in terms of there has to be a real threat to right to life for them to respond with use of weapons like guns because there's a risk that they're going to take someone else's life here.
2: Chutzi says while the recent violence is concerning, rural communities need localized solutions.
4: Justice isn't just sending the police in there, giving them authority to you know shoot whoever's carrying a weapon. It's it's bringing them before the courts, really finding out what actually happened to to cause those cases and escalate that violence and making sure it doesn't happen again. That's what we mean when we talk about remedies in international human rights law.
2: Mary Keeney, a human rights activist in PNG, says the damage of the latest conflict extends well beyond the deaths tallied.
5: They're doing a lot of damages to the properties. Women and children are scattered and the houses are burnt and everything I mean their properties are destroyed. So so again I feel that you know there's something that the, our government needs to really look into this one and do something and they can step in to at least help these people to stop their
2: she says the government's hands-off approach won't solve the crisis, and it needs to step in and attempt to facilitate talks between tribal leaders.
5: They need to have some rule of laws to be guided and be uh, led by some of the other other sources that are already underground. That you know they can at least negotiate to work with them. If they can't, uh, there are some chats groups and there are NGOs and there. Are it Scots and the other leaders on the ground as well.
2: She says she's particularly concerned about the women and children whose safety has been put at risk by the conflict. Mackenzie Smith with that report.
1: Fruity. Fun. Cool are just some of the words young people use to describe e-cigarettes or vapes as they're commonly known. But Bilal is cracking down on the products in a big way, becoming the first Pacific nation to completely ban vaping. Marion Farr looks at why young people are backing the bold move. As a competitive runner, Sydney Francisco knows it's important to look after
6: her health.
7: Especially when you're in sports because when you're damaging your body, you're
6: not able to excel in ways you can. The 18-year-old from Palau was in Budapest on Sunday, competing in the 100 meter sprint at the World Athletics Championships.
0: City Francisco. Francisco, the Republic and four, of Palau.
6: And they are away. Nancy with lots of work to do. She's arguing away. Into she finished world. with a personal best, making her country proud. Hello, Palau. This is me,
7: Sydney. Oh, After okay. my race um I had a personal best I beat it by 0.40. Seconds.
6: But when she returns home, Sydney has another mission to turn her mind to, trying to convince young people to stop vaping.
7: With vaping, it's basically a cigarette and we do know that, you know, cigarettes are really bad for uh, your body and the vaping e-cigarettes already being involved in the youth, it could cause long-term damages to their body because we we are still growing and we don't want to do that. We
6: want to keep our people clean and healthy as possible. A survey taken by the National Health Department late last year found that 80% of school students in Palau had smoked an e-cigarette It was more common among girls than boys. I would see it around in school and in other
7: public places. I would see older people do it. I would see kids younger than me do it. And I just, I didn't want to look at it anymore. So I figured that coming together as a group with amongst with the rest of the generation clean uh, group would sort of make an impact
6: and hopefully change at least a couple of people's lives and that was our goal. Sydney is a facilitator with a new project called Generation Clean, which was started by the Palau Track and Field Association. I try to
7: convince people like, you know, let's let's do other things, let's try to have fun without vaping. And that's how Generation Clean also came to an idea, like, you know, that it's to show people that we can have fun, we can do things, so many things with life that does not involve e-cigarettes.
6: In March this year, the group had a win when Palau's government decided to completely ban the sale and use of e-cigarettes. Under laws that came into effect in May, an individual can be fined $1,000 or spend up to a month in jail for owning or using a vape. For businesses, the penalties are even stricter, with shop owners facing up to one year in jail or a $20,000 fine. Sifumi Mida works for Palau's Prevention Office, which aims to reduce the use of tobacco, vapes and other drugs on the island. We uh, did a research
5: uh, maybe two, three years ago, and then we found out that even though uh, electronic cigarette does not contain nicotine, but it does contain other very harmful toxic chemicals uh, that can
6: easily damage your lungs. uh. The World Health Organization states that e-cigarette emissions typically contain nicotine and other toxic substances that are harmful to both users and non-users who are exposed to the aerosols secondhand. It says some products claiming to be nicotine-free have been found to contain nicotine, which can impact brain development, potentially leading to learning and anxiety disorders in kids. Sifumi Mida says despite the serious consequences, news about the ban is still taking time to get around.
5: It's pretty new. Uh, The the banning of uh, babes is pretty new. So there there are still some people who are using, but it's maybe just uh, 10% or 5% of them using electronic cigarette.
6: She's been going into schools, educating students on the new laws.
5: We caught some of them through social
6: media
5: platform that they're still using. So we started to do our presentation based on the law. We want to remind them that these are the consequences that you will get if you keep on using electronic cigarettes behind the closed doors.
6: There are some people who claim that if by banning the use of electronic cigarettes, more people will go and smoke tobacco or chew tobacco and there'll be an increase in, in normal cigarette use. I
5: wouldn't say uh, they would uh, go back because I think it's the the taste and the smell. Some of them prefer electronic cigarettes over tobacco because of the smell. And most of the people who are using electronic cigarettes have never chewed tobacco all of their lives.
6: Would you like to see other Pacific countries follow Palau's lead and look at similar legislation?
5: Of course, Because as islanders, we lack staffs and also equipment in the hospital
6: to help people when it's too late. Palau is the first Pacific nation to completely outlaw vaping. Elsewhere in the region, e-cigarettes seem to be getting more popular and easily available. For Generation Clean facilitator Emmanuel Adaba, it's all about showing kids there are other ways to have fun.
0: We plan fun activities like going on rock island trips, waterfall trips, hiking trips, just uh, activities that the youth can use to have fun instead of uh, using e-cigarettes, just anything to get them away from using e-cigarettes.
6: And the program is celebrating success.
0: We started off with just... 20 members now we're over 50 with our youngest
3: member being 12 12 years old so that's 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 really good
1: emmanuel adaba a facilitator with balau's generation clean project and that report was compiled by marion far In Tonga, the push is on to get policies in place to curb human trafficking. According to a 2023 US report, Tonga is listed alongside Solomon Islands, Marshall Islands, Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu for not being members on an international protocol against human trafficking. But what exactly is human trafficking and how big a problem is it for Tonga? To help us answer that question, we're joined by Ofa Gilevuka gutenbau the Director of Women and Children. Crisis Centre in Tonga. Malota Mal Pongponini, offer Malota Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Does Tonga have a human trafficking problem?
8: Well, um, I, I think what Tonga has been known for, particularly in the in the region, is its uh, first um, convicted out prosecuted trafficking case about. 10 years ago, um, and then of course we've ha- we haven't we have had anything come before the court, so the assumption is that human trafficking is not an issue in Tonga, but unfortunately that misconception is due to just a, a lack of awareness and um, a lack of closer collaboration between key stakeholders in Tonga to really uh, have a better and a thorough understanding of how this actually is happening in Tonga, but because of lack of resources, lack of training, um, and I think what I said earlier, a lack of stronger collaborations, it is not a priority for Tonga to... Focus, or to invest our time in terms of investigating or identifying human trafficking issues, and I, and I guess the biggest misconception is that human trafficking is something that occurs when the transportation is from another country into Tonga, and very little people, a uh, very little few, understand that it can actually happen just locally as well. Um, so from the outer, outer islands to the main island, even just within the main island or within um, the outer islands, it, it, the human trafficking can happen in any place. It, it's not just a, a international transport from country to country, and that's one of the biggest misconceptions. And so when we carry out um, sessions on human trafficking into communities, they then start to tell stories of how possibly this could be a human trafficking case and they present the, the story. And we're saying, yeah, because in terms of ACT, there's you know a recruitment that is by deception. For example, um, there was uh, some cases that we were made aware of where there was a woman who had been recruiting young girls from schools and these girls were came you know came from very vulnerable uh situations where their families were not financially able to support their children so the recruitment took place um by deception, being told that they were going to uh, wash dishes at a at a local restaurant and then uh in getting to the local restaurant it wasn't the dishwashing that they Thought that they had been recruited to do, but they had been recruited to do other things. So, just you know, um, people are saying, "Oh, right, so that's you know that that's human trafficking." Um, so the awareness really needs to go out and far and wide as possible.
1: Yeah, offer when we talk about human trafficking for our community there in Thonga, I suppose when they don't understand what it is, then they think that it's not a problem. Is that the case?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Particularly when they have, uh, you know, very when when they've got a limited um, definition of human trafficking, then that's the assumption. So they, you know, they know about the case that was prosecuted ten years ago, and that was dealt with, and nothing else has come before the court. So it's not an issue in Tonga.
1: Uh, Are there cases though? Any other cases that have come up in court? Are, Are people being arrested? Are you coming across this in your line of work?
8: Well, the, the there were issues that the police were dealing with with human smuggling, um, but they couldn't really uh, link it to, uh, the, you know, the elements, the core elements of human trafficking. But in terms of the work that we do, we pick up on um, cases where we can see these elements. But because of, of the, you know, our laws uh, are still very weak, in the sense of, because, you know, we were on tier two. We've, we have started to do things to to um, improve our positioning in terms of that. But um, we need to be constant, and we need to keep up the the continuing of uh, meeting with the key stakeholders who are involved in sharing this information. So, for example, we were contacted by a, a local high school uh, to deal with the case that I the example that I had given earlier because it came to the light of the, uh, the senior teachers and the principal that all of a sudden, you know, there was a pattern where of a number of students who hadn't paid their school fees and then all of a sudden the fees were paid in full for the whole entire year. But then they started um, seeing signs where these students were staying together But they had no relationship with each other prior, and then there was a communication from uh, someone in the community who had contacted the school and said, "Well, we are starting to see a grouping of your students in this particular area. We see them leaving early in the morning, and we see them coming um, after school to this place. So, I mean, we were brought in and we started, uh, you know, talking with these." young students, we very much had in the back of our mind, you know, trying to pick up these core elements of human trafficking. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't get to the purpose part, you know, because the, when you look at human trafficking, you have to look at the act, the means and the purpose. Um, and in terms of sexual exploitation, um, we couldn't identify that, but we could identify forced labour um, but then there was people supporting and coming in and saying, "Well, actually, we paid them after, so that was okay." I mean, that was one incident um, that happened, and we know that when we had that prosecuted case ten years ago, um, that would have because, and I mean, we had that case, and then because of our weak legal framework, it then gives the traffickers. Um, the heads up on what not to do and how to work around our weak legal system. So I have no doubt that this is continuing in Tonga, but the traffickers have just become smarter. Um, On another issue, we do have Fijians who are employed by Tongan families and businesses, Fijian citizens who are um, employed by Tongan families and businesses in in Tonga. And there are some cases where the contract has ended um, and then the families continue to hold on to the passports and refuse to return the passports uh, to these Fijian citizen workers um, who then want to go on and work for another family in Tonga or who would like to work for another business. And rightly so, you know, their contract has ended um, yet the holding of that passport and then continuing to make them uh, you know, work for, for their family without extending the contract or without um, entering into an equal you know, kind of conversation around what's going to happen next.
1: Mm. Also, um, so is the, because of that then, are the community aware that slavery in any type, way or form is actually prohibited on Tonga soil? Of course. I mean, it's in our
8: constitution and it's enshrined in our constitution and it's something that Tongans uh, proudly stand by, that we, you know, uh, the first part of our constitution declares that there should not be any slavery in Tonga. Um, But in terms of understanding that under modern slavery and how it can be exercised, there's still a whole lot of awareness that needs to be um, undertaken.
1: If you're tuning in, we're speaking with Director of Women and Children Crisis Centre of Gilevuka gutenberg on this trafficking and also drug issues in Tonga, which if we want to turn to that topic now. I mean, last week Tonga had its first mandatory life sentence for trafficking of methamphetamine. Do you think such a harsh sentence will deter others from dealing in the field of drugs?
8: Yeah, it has been a topic of conversation, particularly through social media. Um, and, I mean, it's yet to be um, seen. You know, it, the the fact that this is the first drug trafficking case that has resulted in uh, the death sentence, it'll be very interesting to see in the next uh, year or so how this impacts the community. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, you know, we'll just have to monitor it. But we do have a backload of cases that the court still has to go through. So, yeah, uh, Mm. just keeping an eye on that.
1: How big of a problem really is methamphetamine in Tonga?
8: Anecdotally, uh, you know, there's so many um, stories that we hear. I mean, particularly if we come back to the Women and Children Crisis Centre, we are dealing with cases that are directly related with the use of methamphetamine. Um, and, you know, hardly ever did we have a case of that nature, say, 10 years ago. But in the last um, five to six years, it's just been on the increase. And, you know, I think I mentioned around about that time, about five or six years ago, that we had to actually recruit um a specialist uh drug and alcohol uh counselor and she's still with us now um and so you know it, it 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 is a real case of um concern i mean we've had cases from young children right through to to you know elderly people so it it the impact of you know, other family members who are using methamphetamine and then the impact on the the other family members and the violence and abuse that results from it.
1: With your work, you know, at the Crisis Centre, what is the impact that you're possibly seeing or even just the effect on everyday families there in Tonga?
8: The situation is, I mean, again, it comes back to, you know, our... There really needs to be some like robust um, training on how people identify, and how we can. And, and it's not just the key agency; it's not it's not just customs; it's not just immigration; it's actually people in the community as well, identifying early on um, how. Drugs has come into their community. You know, people hear stories and they talk about actual, you know, houses in their villages. Oh, that house is a is a is a drug house, or that person's involved in uh, drug trafficking in Tonga. I mean, and then what do you do next? That's the biggest problem. It's like people talk about it, but nothing is is actually actioned. And I think that there needs to be um, community, you know nationwide discussions are on this and to empower community leaders, um, to empower youth leaders and to empower just every person in the community on how to identify and how to report safely because a lot of people don't report because they fear their their safety. Mm. And we know that from the cases that we deal with at the crisis centre, particularly those that are referred to the safe house, they don't want to get involved with the police. They just want a safe place to um, to be placed, but not wanting to talk to any officials because they fear for their life. Um, you know, they think that the police are corrupted. If we tell the police um, that their perpetrator will find them. Um, so it really is quite complex in terms of... But we've seen that fear, and the fear is real, Um And, you know, it's something that we need to really uh, get. We've got the national uh, policy that we've had and we had a conference on that about two years ago and then that was it. We haven't gone together again to talk about what has the implementation been, what are the results of the work that we've done so far. It's just, you know, we we tend to um, respond to things when it, comes to light like through international mm. media and say, okay, right, we've got to get this. And even the king himself had addressed this and said we've got to knuckle down as a nation and, and address this issue. And then we all got together and, and, and talked about it at this national conference. But my concern is we need to keep following up. We need to keep uh, talking to each other and saying, okay, what's working and what's not working? Um, because it is an issue in Tonga, we can't deny it. I mean... Of course, drugs is everywhere in the world, but we've got such a small nation that we are seeing the impacts, um, particularly the, the key agencies who are working with uh, survivors and
1: victims in this area. It is so good to hear your voice this morning, offer and just your insight into what is actually happening there in Tonga. I really do hope that there is some sort of resolution that comes uh, with the work that you are doing. But offer. malo pito hos, ikau bōgala mahe, pōng pōngini. No worries. That, of course, is Director of Women and Children Crisis Centre of Whakilebuka Gutenbau Now, if you need help, you can call the Tonga Women and Children Crisis Centre. The number is 22240. That is 22240. <laughs> It's that time of the morning to look what's making news across the Pacific. And this morning, we have Pacific Beat producer Evan Wasuka to take us through the headlines of that. Good morning, Evan.
9: Good morning, Aggie.
1: (laughs) Let's get straight into it. After almost two years of signalling its plan, it looks like Japan is on the verge of announcing a date now of when it will
9: release wastewater from the damaged Fukushima chemical power plant. That's right, Aggie. So Japan's Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, he'll meet with his cabinet ministers today to set the exact date when the release will happen. Now, Mr. Kishida visited the power plant and met with the largest fishing union earlier this week about the matter. Uh, Japan Times is reporting that the release could be as early as this week. The national broadcaster, NKB, says it'll be Thursday, but we don't know for certain when that date will be until that meeting happens, and the the Prime Minister makes the official announcement. Uh, The Japanese Prime Minister has told reporters that Japan would take full responsibility for any adverse effects or consequences when that 1.3 million tonnes of treated water is released. Now, there's still concerns in Japan, in some sectors, about the impact this will have on fishery stock and uh, marine life. Uh, Interestingly, there's also been a reaction from China, Uh, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson. uh, Yesterday, he called Japan's plan extremely selfish and irresponsible because of the potential threat to uh, marine environment and health. And uh, the spokesperson says that China... Uh, has expressed its grave concerns and will closely follow the developments. In the region, uh, Fiji's Prime Minister, Sitiveni Rambuka, he's continued to maintain his stance, which is to support the International Atomic Energy Agency report, which um, endorses the safety of the dumping. Um, uh, Mr Rambuka told Fijian Broadcasting Corporation that his position remains the same and unwavering. Uh, he said criticism about uh, what Fiji's stance, uh, we're just uh, cases of fear mongering now Mr Rambuka and the Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown are among the Pacific leaders that have endorsed that uh, atomic energy uh, report and around the safety and the release of the uh, wastewater. So, uh, Aggie, that's where we stand right now with the release of nuclear-treated wastewater at Fukushima.
1: Mm, We will wait for that date. Uh, Let's head to Vanuatu, where a major sub-regional meeting is due to take place uh, with Melanesian leaders to attend.
9: That's right. So the leaders of Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, and uh, host Vanuatu, along with FLNKS from New Caledonia, are confirmed to meet on Wednesday for the Melanesian Leaders Summit uh, according to Radio New Zealand International, the MSG foreign ministers, they met yesterday, where official looked at the agenda for the upcoming uh, leaders' meeting. Now, Fiji hasn't yet confirmed whether Sitiveni Rambuka will attend. Uh, that's the other member of the MSG sub-regional group. Now, on the agenda will be the submission by Free, uh, Free West Papa Movement for full membership. Currently, they, are, they have observer status. Uh, while Indonesia has associate membership. Um, so that will be up for discussion. One of the other key items on the agenda will also be security between uh, the Melanesian Spearhead Group countries. Uh, so interesting that security is there given the geopolitics we are seeing and uh, all the talk around uh, a competition for influence in the region. The uh, other issue that will also come up is the Melanesian Spearhead Group trade agreement agreement which currently only has Solomon Islands and Fiji. They're the signatories to it. Uh, We'll see if more members will uh, join this agreement. Now, the last Melanesian Spearhead Group meeting was in 2018. Uh, So this one is the first in in about five years. And the, the whole thing is aimed at getting MSG members to work together, advance their interests, and to have common understandings on certain issues. I'm sure geopolitics is probably just one of those.
1: Absolutely. Hey, just to lighten things up, though, the Rugby World Cup is just around the corner, and the Fijians are adding a bit of culture to their jerseys.
9: Yeah, so uh, interesting news out of Fiji. We know over the couple of weeks, over the past couple of weeks, there's been some criticisms and concerns about Fiji's New Jersey because they had switched to new red ones uh, made by Nike. Usually, Fiji is white jersey and black shorts. So I get that change, in Carla had some people not too impressed with that new outfit, but now there's some changes happening um, in terms of what the team will be wearing. Uh, so the Fiji team will now have the player's name on the jersey, which is unusual in, for rugby, and on top of that, we'll also have the player's village and province. Yeah, so something different. So this is a reported by the Fiji Sun newspaper, and it quotes uh, Fiji, Flying Fijians coach Simon Rawalui, are saying this is part of the team's effort to connect with the Vanua and uh, because ultimately the players are out there representing their people and their province. So uh, something different. We'll see if it will help the team on the field when they uh, head into the World Cup. Uh, I mean, so far they've had a good run. They won all their Pacific Nations Cup matches, beating Tonga, Samoa and Japan. But over the weekend, uh, they did put up a strong effort against France despite going down 34-17. Maybe the New Jerseys will help in the World Cup.
1: <laughs> I would say probably their skill level might be what is the deciding factor on how well they do on their field. But uh, Evan, we thank you for doing our news wrap this morning. Thank you, Aggie. Now, a rush to document the untold history of Papua New Guinean Kiaps is underway, with fears the last generation may soon pass away. Kiaps were patrol officers employed by the Australian government in the lead-up to PNG's independence. The project, Memories of the Kiaps, is led by anthropologist Professor Rosita Henry at James Cook University in Cairns. Speaking with Marion Farr, she said Kiaps performed many important roles.
0: They did a whole range of work. They were sent out on patrol, which is why they called patrol officers, because they worked in the regional, in the rural areas, and they were sent out to, to certain stations uh, in the various provinces and so on. And they uh, did anything from patrolling and taking censuses of the population, documenting particular practices, documenting conflict that might be taking place, they were bureaucrats, magistrates, police, they were, had a really uh, diverse role.
6: And were there any local Papua New Guineans who were key apps, or was it mostly um, Australian citizens?
0: Originally it was Australian, but uh, as the years were leading up to independence, so in the prelude to independence, as uh, so the decolonisation process was happening, uh, they, there was more um, Papua New Guinean. Key ups trained as well, and so there was a kind of a localization of of the key up, you know, role happening. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, we've we've documented that there were quite a, a number of, of hundreds of key ups, Papua New Guinea key ups, actually employed, and we're hoping as part of our study to actually be interviewing. Uh, some of the remaining Kiaps who may still be alive we're getting to the last generation of Kiaps who worked in Papua New Guinea in the prelude to independence, and so this is really a, a really vital study because it 's not just a matter of you know looking at the archival documents but actually trying to uh, document this vital sort of oral history that is rapidly being lost uh, because you know the lifespan of a human being is only so long. So we've got this really rich resource of, you know, first-hand experience of people who worked in rural regional areas prior to independence, working on projects that were trying to prepare the population for independence. And uh, we're hoping through our study to be able to document that. And, crucially, to give some uh, recognition to Papua New Guinea voices. Um, so, you know, the Papua New Guinean um Key are really important. No one has actually documented or recorded, um, Papua New Guinea and this history of, 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 of key updom in, in Papua New Guinea. And, um, particularly with the, you know, Papua New Guinea key apps. Ah, uh, their oral histories has have, have just it's not been done at all. And what sort of a relationship did the Kiaps have with
6: the local people in PNG? And and I guess how are they remembered? Um, were they sort of seen like as colonial forces, or um, did they have a closer relationship with with the locals? Well, I think it's
0: you know different depending on. Very much an individual thing as well, but certainly from a general perspective, Kiaps were, uh, you know, associated with the colonial powers and, you know, the Australian government. They were thought of as government, and so um, there is that ambivalent attitude, you know, to Kiaps, um, a, a negative attitude on the part of some people to Kiaps, and on other on the part of others, a, a more positive attitude. And I think the Kiaps themselves um, feel this, you know. So there's a sense that some people sort of want to forget about them because they're associated with this colonial history, and um, let's just, you know, hide it all under the carpet and just forget about this kind of service that Kiaps did in Papua New Guinea at the time, uh, whether they be Australian or Papua New Guinean Kiaps. And and then there are others who are saying, oh, hang on, this is part of our Australian and Papua New Guinean history, you know, and uh, this shouldn't be swept under the carpet. We should be actually recognising um, what Kiaps did and 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 the kinds of difficult situations that Kiaps were were in, the, the service that they gave, um, which may, you know, have been. Uh, you know really wonderful in in some cases and you know may have been not so wonderful in in some cases which is which is the case with any kind of um uh service that people give so you can find in any uh bureaucratic service or in in, in the army service for example or you know the the armed forces you can you can find that people um you know that there are you know people on both sides who some people who do the wrong thing um, and get, you know, and then others who have, have really provided a service that gets recognised. So I think um, overall among the key ups, what I've been picking up is a sense of wishing their service to be recognised and feeling that it hasn't been in Australia anyway. And in Papua New Guinea, certainly the, the Papua New Guinean Kiaps, apps, um, you know, um, I haven't heard of any you know, recognition of their service to the state, uh, to the union state, um, uh, you know, as well. So mm. I think it's an important study to, to follow through and, you know, to look at it warts and all, you know, not to necessarily celebrate everything, to celebrate what needs to be celebrated, but also to look at the problematic issues of how one goes about decolonising and whether the decolonisation process was actually successful or not, what were the successes and what were the failures.
8: Mm.
6: And have you had many key apps, uh, you know, agree to be involved in this project
0: so far? um, well, we um, we actually don't have the funding yet, so we applied to the Australian Research Council for funding for the project, and uh, we're still waiting to hear. So we're kind of preempting a little bit, but we decided that we're going to go ahead with this project. We're going to try and do it even if the funding doesn't, you know, come forth. That that we're going to it. It's just time is of the essence. Um, as I said, you know, the lifespan of a human is only so long, and we have this last generation of, of key ups who can still speak and reflect on what they did during that time. But, you know, we've got this opportunity, and so we've decided to start. We went and got ethics approval for our research from the JCU um, Research Ethics Committee, and so we've, we can actually go ahead and start some interviews even though we don't have – Funding yet. Um, but to pr- pursue the project to its fullest capacity, we will need further funding. Yeah.
1: It's James Cook, University Anthropologist, Dr. Rosita Henry speaking with Marion Farr. This is Pacific Beat. This week, South Sea Islanders will mark 160 years since the arrival of Pacific Islanders from Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea and Fiji to work on Australia's sugar plantations. For one South Sea descendant, last night was a historical occasion with the tabling of a motion to link local New South Wales councils with the Pacific Labour Scheme and a second motion celebrating prominent South Sea women. Joining us this morning is the councillor who moved that motion for Port Jackson... Wascom, Imelda Davis. With that, I say welcome to Pacific Beat.
10: Good morning, and I love that introduction.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Wascom, why did you feel the need to move this motion linking city councils to the Pacific Labour scheme?
10: My dear, um, thank you for having me first and foremost. I'm speaking from Gadigal country here in Sydney and uh, it was incredibly important and I just want to acknowledge the many Pacific Island communities and our Australian South Sea Islander communities um, that I've worked with for over a decade and, and um, supporting seasonal workers and in particular the Vanuatu High Commissioner so and the Vanuatu Government. But um, it was so important because... Uh, We are one sole warra. We are all connected. We continue as a a race of people in this country um, to be under-recognised. In fact, this year is 176 years since the first South Sea Islanders were brought to New South Wales in 1847. And what I say to Department of Foreign Affairs and the Palm Scheme and when we advocate is that this is... A continuum of what occurred we are the first seasonal workers as australian south sea Islander descendants of seven pacific nations in this country and uh, we are witnessing some of the challenges that occurred um, in uh previous generations so our communities are you know on the front line and we've been fielding calls for the better part of 12 years since the scheme started. And uh, it's been quite a, an emotional journey, but incredibly, um, you know, informative about how we can work better together with governments and local communities and empower our local communities. Long-winded, I know, my sister, but, you know, I just had to put it in there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, how was this motion received? And, and do you know or believe it will be adopted?
10: It was an unanimous support. And what happens now is that I bought the notice of motion to the City of Sydney Council in order to take that to local government, New South Wales councils. At the end of the year, we have a um, state conference and then that's asking, uh, um, first of all, the Lord Mayor of Sydney to write to the Premier to say, this is a real need in our communities. It's non-biased, you know, outreach programs that are awarded to every Australian taxpayer in terms of access, equity, social services. Um, and the needs of, you know, health and wellbeing. And then what happens with that is that uh, we go to local government, New South Wales, and it's been accepted because I've been working with so many different moving parts uh, to get this nom up. And um, then we'll debate it on the floor at local government, New South Wales out at Parramatta this year. And then that will uh, assist uh, New South Wales government to advocate to the Commonwealth government, because this is a Government-to-government program, that's what people are missing here. Uh, It's a federal government program. Vanuatu also feeds into this program. I say Vanuatu because I've been working closely. Um, But all the Pacific nations feed into this program, and that bilateral agreement has to reflect um, centering our seasonal workers at the core of all the policies that are rolled out um, so that, you know, they're protected, um, our communities back home, are, uh, you know, able to strive um, uh, and make sure that they're uh, meeting the requirements here in Australia and Australia is also culturally appropriate with how we work together here in Australia um, from a uh, an Indigenous perspective because we're Indigenous peoples, right? So mm. the gaps yeah. are is that there's a lack of understanding about culture and language and those things that, you know, sustain communities in working better together, you know, understanding,
1: yeah? Yeah. What would you say to people who might question why Australian taxpayers are having to have to pay for the service, I suppose, for foreign workers?
10: Uh, Well, Australian taxpayers, um, (laughs) the actual foreign workers are taxpayers themselves, yeah? So seasonal workers pay tax like any other Australian And it is noted in these documents that they will be treated as our Australian employers. So they're actually entitled. Yeah, it's not a slave trade. And this is one of the things that we've got to remember is that this is a bilateral agreement. This is a Pacific step up. You know, it comes under the guise of caring for our neighbours and one soul warrior, all that kind of rhetoric that we hear from government. So we've got to get smarter. Australian South Sea Islanders, Port Jackson, um, the organization i chaired we conducted the um, seasonal worker uh, labor peer re- peer review working with 17 pacific nations to actually you know try and uh, rectify some of the challenges that we're having um, from a uh, pacific perspective so i'm incredibly proud of that report that we put out in december 22 working with the pacific island forum secretariat of course and um, with Australia and New Zealand. Uh, So, yeah,
1: Hmm. yeah. Now, there have been reports of exploitation, bullying, overcrowded accommodation, even wage theft. Do you think criticism of the Palm Scheme, uh, say, comparing it to blackbirding are accurate or fair?
10: Well, you know, I mean, okay, people, that's a fact, all those things that you spoke about. Um, I've got lived experience in fielding those calls and actually travelling to speak to those people, working with the heads of mission, in particular Vanuatu, to actually go out as uh, in trying to, um, I guess, uh, resolve some of the challenges. Working with DFAT, it's not easy, yeah? It's a big scheme. You've got 39,000 mm. Pacific nations here, Timor-Leste. Now, there's going to be fallout with any, um, I, I think, um, scheme or, or program that is seeing an influx yeah, of, of people coming en masse to a country and, and people trying to balance those people coming into small townships and regions and the exploitation occurs. Modern slavery is real. You know, there are people out there. There's a lot of good farmers out there. I've worked with a lot of positive people that are really caring and loving our, our seasonal workers and really looking after them, but there's also a lot of bad and a lot of misinformation in terms of how to manage this program and what people's rights are. And we're here to put a stop to all of that because uh, we want to be treated the way, or we should be treating people the way we want to treat our families and look after and nurture. So that's the approach that approved employers, um, you know, people that are out for a quick fix, and also, you know, educating our mob on uh, what our rights are and how we can conduct ourselves and and maneuver you know this colonial framework because people are coming from indigenous nations which is a whole different governance system in some cases yes there's Westminster system governing you know policy and programs and all of that stuff but you know we have a mindset of of First Nations people and governance and we are distinctly different but we all want the same outcome and that's a better future for our families
1: thank you for that Wascom. i do want to ask uh what impact do you think because i know you had another motion that you moved for sydney's sort of uh of arts project that include work celebrating a number of pioneering south sea islander women what are the impacts that you're hoping that these women's success have been celebrated
10: well, one of the things that I really, um, you know, the last 15-odd years that we've been lobbying and working on the shoulders of, you know, all of these amazing people, and in particular these three women have been mentors, actual mentors in my life, and I'm incredibly grateful for the smarts that they've imparted with me um, and and the nation, you know, Auntie Faith Bandler or Mrs Faith Bandler, Order of Australia, Woman Ambram, yeah, um, very proud South Sea Islander woman who's, father was stolen from Amber Marland. Uh Dr. Benita Mabo, very proud South Sea Islander woman, woman Tana, but instrumental as a part of, you know, the matriarch of na- native title with the Mabo decision and, and securing land rights. And also um, uh, Annie Shireen Malamu, woman Tongoa, uh, Aboriginal Kanak woman, um, incredibly instrumental with uh, being one of our first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander commissioners and all three women come, were. Yeah?
1: I apologize that we the show is about to close. I wish we had a oh, little bit okay. more time with you, but we just want to say thank you so much for the work that you are doing.
10: Okay, look at yeah.
1: me. Appreciate it. Uh, that, of course, is Port Jackson Council and South Sea Islander Wascom Imelda Davis. I am Aggie Dubow, and you have been tuning into Pacific Beat.